Welcome to a new episode of the Pharma Forum podcast. In this latest instalment, I spent some time with Novavax's EVP, Chief Commercial Officer and Chief Business Officer, John Tredsino, together with the company's Chief Medical Officer, Philip Dubofsky, after they had flown into London at the Jefferies Conference. Novavax's COVID-19 vaccine was our key topic of discussion with the conversation orbiting around the company's 25-year history of research and development in influenza as well as malaria and its forward-looking plan. Now in the late autumn, pharma and the great British public alike are only too aware that this is the shift moment in the seasons, when the freedoms of that post-new normal living the coronavirus mindset could all too easily be swept away in a wave of rising infections. So it is that Novavax is keen to remind regulators and policymakers alike that its vaccine option offers an alternative. But time is of the essence. Be forewarned, there is background noise. Our discussions took place at the One Aldwick Hotel on London Strand, and although as quiet a corner as possible to find, the city's ceaseless vivacity yet found us at points. However, I hope you find the conversation as enlightening as I did. So this is Nicole Raleigh for Pharma Forum, and today I'm meeting with Novavax in London at the One Aldwick Hotel. So I'm just wondering if you could introduce yourselves for me, please. Well, good afternoon. John Trezino, I'm the Chief Commercial Officer and Chief Business Officer for Novavax. And uh, my name is Philip DeVos, I'm the Chief Medical Officer. Nice to meet you both today, and I know you've travelled quite a distance, uh, not for this sort of chat, I might add, but for the Jefferies Conference. So can you tell me a bit about what Novavax is going to be speaking about there or listening to there, your purpose in flying so all as, this as way? you can imagine, we have a number of constituents that we need to engage with all yeah. the time, certainly and most importantly for the company with our COVID-19 vaccine um, in hand and, and now licensed around the globe is for the benefit of, of public health. You know, we're working with all of the agencies on a country-by-country -country basis. Um, and, and we're specifically engaged with them all the time from a regulatory standpoint and a policy perspective. Uh, but of course, we're a publicly traded company and we have an investment community that we have to keep updated and informed. And so a conference like Jeffrey's gives us a chance to do that, um, in particular in the, in the U.S. and why we're uh, here in, in the EU and in London specifically for this meeting is because we have a significant EU presence now. I, th I think we have just as many employees in EU a number of functions as we as we do in the rest of the world. Uh, we have a manufacturing facility in the Czech Republic uh, for our antigen. We have another facility in Uppsala, Sweden, and we have several commercial policy, government affairs, people around the globe. So important for us to make sure we have a presence here in Europe and that our voices are heard and people are familiar with who Novavax is. Definitely. Would you like to add anything to that? Uh, well, uh, only that with our interactions, we clearly go back quite a after what we did our very first little PC study, uh, and we confirmed that with the uh, larger study in this So, uh, you know, we like to work here, we like the uh, uh, scientific and technical expertise we can have in um, and, uh, and now our, our vaccine is licensed. So, it's a, a good thing to see the full circle go from clinical study to uh, license. 
Definitely. I just I just want to um, focus on what you said. You go back a fair way with the UK, but to come away from that, going back a fair way, I mean, you're not a new company, are you? You're over twenty five years old. Is that that's, correct? That's, that's correct. Yeah. So, what what are your sort sort of foundations? What's led you to this point now with this COVID nineteen vaccination? Yeah. So probably most related to the last ten to 12 years or so where we've been immersed in kind of the vaccine development part of, of the, the, the company's history. Um, and and I think what's notable, and especially this is true for, for many biotech companies, we invest very heavily in our technology platforms. We invest heavily in our science. Um, we're, we're very focused on, you know, what, what the, the benefit could be uh, from that work that's done. And, and, and for us, that's manifested itself in, in being keenly ready to respond to the COVID-19 pandemic, right? You, you know, come January, 2020, you didn't just wake up and realize that, well, maybe we should come up with a vaccine for COVID. Um, that was only possible because of the 10 years of investment that had been made in this technology platform, this recombinant protein nanoparticle. And then similarly with our, our matrix adjuvant. So, um, you know, we're, we're pleased that we could respond. We're pleased that we have a technology platform that can be leveraged. Um, and, and that's the nature as an innovator. Um, mm -hmm. we, what, we, what we do, we focus on a particular area. Uh, we we uh, try through clinical trials and the work that's done in discovery and preclinical work. And, and then you have the opportunity to demonstrate that capability when presented with a problem like this. Mm -hmm. So can I just ask, what was your focus before? The pandemic um, presented itself. I know at the moment you're going to be working or are working potentially on uh, malaria adjuvant in Oxford, but before the pandemic came about, was that your focus? So, um, not specifically, but um, I think those kinds of disease areas mm -hmm. and, and related to our adjuvant work are, you know, what what benefit can we use, bring to our adjuvant technology? Uh, but we were working on influenza. Uh, for a long while, um, and we were working with RSV, respiratory uh, syncytial virus, and and so a, a number of you know these uh, um, respiratory infectious disease candidates um, has has been the company's focus and expertise. Uh, I think one reason that the company to come so swiftly on COVID is that uh, previously they've been worked with original SARS, you know, with MERS, which is on the coronavirus. Mm -hmm. So I, I think maybe that. They were well poised to deploy the technology, and they did that well. Actually, sorry, it's the company. Yes, um, but your uh, vaccine is actually slightly different from others on the market, isn't it? Yours is a the first protein-based vaccine against COVID instead of a synthesized, isn't it? So it's based on innovative approach using traditional vaccine technologies you've been discussing um, for not only flu but also shingles and HPV. Is that correct? Well, uh, those are certainly uh, areas we can go into, and we are working on some all kinds of efficiencies in the discovery space. Uh, but uh, what we have in the clinic in the near term is really coronavirus influenza combinations of influenza and coronavirus, because that makes all the sense in the world to get uh, combination vaccines, single visit, gives you one jab to protect you against those diseases. And other respiratory viruses, like uh, John was talking about, uh, virus, where there's some new uh, vaccines that are coming. Great. So sticking with this, what's the sort of difference, say, to the layman 
um, who is looking at the latest sort of Pfizer BioNTech BA4, BA5 option against Omicron and your vaccine. So I'll, I'll take that and I'll, uh, I'll unpack it a bit because yeah. the, the, the different technologies work in different ways. Yeah. So uh, mRNA technology as well as the biotech technologies that have been pushed forward by um, Johnson Johnson and AstraZeneca work by delivering a nucleic acid sequence right into the human cells where the, uh, the protective protein, the spike protein is manufactured in the cells uh, and then your body generates immune response. We have a different approach. We actually manufacture the, the spike protein outside in insect cells and then we lock it into the proper conformation and then we form it into a particle and that's important because to the immune response that looks like a delicious little virus and it's processed in the natural way it is mm -hmm. uh, and on top of that we add our ITIL system and the result is uh, a vaccine which induces very high levels of uh, neutralizing antibody titer. they're also very broad um, and what we knew from our first phase three studies was that our vaccine was actually capable of protecting people against variants. Majority of cases in both of our phase three studies were variant um, viruses, and we protected north of 90% of those studies. Um, so um, different technologies bring different things. We have this, this uh, very broad immune response and a very durable immune response. Um, and right now, uh, it, it, so all of our data indicates that the vaccine that we've already deployed uh, and is being used globally uh, appears to have a immune response to completely valid the BA4 5. So that's the one we're sticking with right now. Now, we, we've done some studies with Omicron based uh, vaccines as well as bivalent vaccines. Uh, they work fine, but it doesn't really seem to offer much advantage or really any advantage over the one that we have a really large safety database with right Brilliant. So, your current vaccine that's authorized for administration to adults for both primary series and booster as well as primary series for adolescents. So what's the sort of plan next? Are you going to be looking at sort of younger people? Absolutely. So we have a study ongoing right now with school-age children, mm -hmm. uh, children in uh, six to 11 years of age in the US. And we're gonna be expanding that study globally. In fact, I think we're planning to uh, have some study sites here in the UK. Um, our partners uh, in Serum have taken this vaccine down to children as young as two years of age. Uh, and, and it's found to be there and safe uh, and immunogenic. So, you know, it's our plan is to get out to the youngest children so we can expand uh, its use. And, you know, we have different indications uh, and refer, um, for policy recommendations in different parts of the world. Uh, so in, in some places, uh, we are being used almost exclusively as a boosting dose, as a, as a third and fourth uh, dose booster. In some places, it's more limited. It just depends how they, when they, uh, regulators and policymakers look at the data where they find the need for vaccine. And that's why it's important to parse that out a little bit, right? You talked mm -hmm. about being approved. Well, for vaccines, there's um, a, a couple of different layers of what approval mm -hmm. means. So um, specifically in, in the UK, we now just have recently received uh, MHRA approval, the regulatory authority approval for use as a boost, a heterologous boost, meaning boosting on top of any previously vaccinated a vaccine used. Mm -hmm. uh, we also back several months ago had MHRA approval for adolescents, but what then needs to be done is it needs to go to a policy recommendation body, right? Uh, what do they call these, you know, technical advisory groups and in, in the particular case in the UK, it's the JCVI um, and they, they opine 
Um, what we're waiting on at the moment is for the JCVI component of this, um, and that's taken a bit longer than we would have hoped and expected, mm -hmm. given you know the current fall vaccine uh, campaign. Um, you know, vaccination rates are are lower than everybody would like them to be at the moment. Um, we think that with our technology platform, as Philip described, with now being approved as a as a as a boost. Uh, to any other previously uh, vaccine used um, and having adolescence being recommended for use that we would hope that we would have gotten policy support at this point. So we're eager to get in front of JCVI. We have not had the opportunity to, to do that yet and give them updated information um, so that they can create their supportive policy. Um, and then that other vaccine, that other option of a vaccine be made available. I think this promotes vaccine confidence. Vaccine confidence promotes improved vaccination rates. So it's all tied together. I think it's important for people to understand that distinction. Definitely. I, I was just wondering while you were thinking, is there something in this um, delay with JCVI? Is it intertwined with, although pharma, biotech, still COVID is key, we need to do something about it. In the greater public, however, there is a fatigue. Um, you know, as much as there's awareness to rising and falling levels of infection, at the same time, do I, is it relevant to this hesitation with JPI? Is it relevant that the general public is accepting, not accepting, but accepting COVID? What are your thoughts on that? So, so Philip and I have been in the vaccine space for a very long time, right? And I think that there are some things that are true and, and carry through attitudes toward vaccinations. And, and, and one is, it's hard for people sometimes to comprehend that a vaccine is there for prevention, right? Mm -hmm. You don't get sick and then you get treated. Yep. You're, this is a preventive uh, um, administration to help you stop from getting sick. So there's things that go along with that. So why do people get vaccinated? They go get vaccinated because they're confident that a vaccine is gonna provide that to them. So there's this vaccine confidence issue, and then there's vaccine hesitancy, potentially vaccine fatigue in this particular case, mostly related to the pandemic, right? I don't want, I don't need to get another vaccination. Um, um, and, and, and then, and then we have, and then there's fear, right? The fear of getting ill drives higher vaccination rates. So I think there's a lot of, um, elements in play that we need to consider. And I think that's just behavioral relative to the consumer, mm -hmm. right? Um, on the JCVI side, what you have is you have a governmental agency that's responsible for public health policy. So their job, as we see it, and uh, um, is is to make sure that the science is being evaluated the right way, that the vaccines are being used the right way, that the general public is informed by their recommendation about what should be done. And so that's a that's a, a very a specific function that they have, right? It's it's not should not be about procurement, should not be about, you know, other unrelated factors other than what the benefit and the use of that vaccine should be. So you have the regulatory authority, you, you've got the policy makers, and then you have general education and awareness about why vaccines are important to public health. Yes, I, I totally concur. I mean, we, before the pandemic, had this um, hesitancy with the influenza job itself. So perhaps it is just, as you say, a behavioural thing. But that said, um, one million doses of your vaccine were delivered in the UK in the third quarter of this year. Is that correct? That's correct. So there's definitely not a, as far as I can interpret that, hesitancy there. So that's 
you must be quite pleased with that uptake. Well, that's a that's a good question. So it, it's been delivered, mm. um, sitting in a warehouse, oh. not being used um, because we don't have JCBI policy. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And, and so it's certainly a disappointment to us. I, and I would think, you know, having vaccine go unused would be a disappointment to most people. Um, we're eager to make sure that there's at least an opportunity. And the other important part of, of, of a vaccine hesitancy is, is access. If someone decides that they want to be vaccinated, they want to go to their healthcare provider, they want to go to the pharmacy, um, and, and the vaccine needs to be available. If it's not available, it creates an opportunity for them to turn away and, and not get vaccinated, and that would be a bad thing. So I, I think access issues critically important. And, and having that many doses available and I'm not making it available to the general public is something that we're eager to, uh, to correct. Yes, it doesn't seem right. It seems quite strange. I want to go back to what you were saying about the exclusive uptake elsewhere. Can you give me some examples of where your vaccine has been uh, sort of fluidly implemented? Yeah, we, yeah there are several examples uh, where, where we can, uh, where our vaccine is available side by side with other vaccines and there's and there's uh, an even playing field of positive uh, place where some people are choosing our vaccine. The best example is probably in Korea, mm -hmm. uh, where where the vast majority of our doses, let's say over 80% now, are being used for the foods. And that's a place where there's a choice, where they can choose which vaccine they're going And, and um, on the flip side, we see some places where uh, the policy recommendation uh, has a perfect choice not for our vaccine, and that steers people away from our vaccine. Do you have any comment on the news today on NICE's decision on the various, obviously the sort of bivalent and autism, on the various vaccines that are given the nod and are not given the nod? Did you hear about this news or were you in the air at the time? Well, I heard a little you bit heard about a little bit, the, yeah. the news today, but you know, um, you know, here, here again, there's a lot of data and science that needs to be assessed yes. that sometimes doesn't get effectively communicated. And and um, I'll kind of tee it up a little bit and then hand it over to Philip because it's, it's really important to understand from the very beginning of this year, um, there's been an assessment going on about what would be the best approach to how to deal with the various variants, right? Uh, whether it's Omicron or something else, um, what, how does this resemble influenza? Do we, what, what do we change? What don't we change? And we've, we've said that it, we would need to either have a monovalent with, you know, the original Wuhan strain. Uh, we need to have a monovalent with a variant strain, or we need to have a bivalent vaccine that has a combination of the original strain plus a variant strain. And we said all along that we'd be prepared to do strain change or do a bivalent. And then we went and conducted a study to assess what would be the best under these circumstances with the circulating strains that we know about today. So with that, Philip can tell you about the study that we just conducted and the results we just presented last week at our earnings call. Yeah, I, I mean, the, 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 the points we tested all, all three flavors that John was describing in our clinical study, um, and they were all equally well tolerated and safe. Uh, what we found, however, is that the bivalent will offer no benefit to uh, the vaccine. In fact, when you look at the immune responses, the one that are the best immune responses, the original one, and we think there's a scientific basis for that. Uh, what we're doing is we're focusing immune responses on the bits that don't change. Uh, and and so this high focus, we're able to uh, be relevant for the emerging variants. Same with it, we saw with influenza in our earlier uh, phase three studies for flu. So it's a very similar concept. 
Brilliant. Thank you, Philip. Well, John, Philip, thank you for all that. Is there anything else you want to add to what we've been yes. discussing today um, for our listeners? I, I think, at least for, for, for me, I think it's it's an awareness that um, we have um, what was a what was a relatively small biotech company that was an innovator of a very uh, safe and effective vaccine to defend against the pandemic. Um, I, I think the data speaks for itself. Uh, we're trying to communicate that message around the globe. Uh, we have a lot of uh, dedicated people that work at Novavax that have, uh, have uh, um, dedicated their lives for the last two and a half years to, to achieve this. Um, we're proud of those accomplishments. Certainly thankful of all the people that have participated in clinical trials around around the globe. Um, and we look forward to our ongoing contributions to public health. I think the other thing is that, you know, this virus hasn't gone away. And it's not going away. People are still dying. Um, and we should be pretty careful because as this thing continues to change, we need to be on top of it and make sure we have countermeasures available to support this. It sounds like you're on the positive path. Thank you very much, both. Thank you. Thank Appreciate you. your time.
That concludes this episode of the Pharma Forum podcast. You can find more information about this episode, including a download link and information about other installments in the series at pharmaforum.com slash podcast. The Pharma Forum podcast is also available on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, Stitcher, and Podme, where you can find and subscribe by searching for Pharma Forum. And don't forget to visit our website where you can sign up for daily news and analysis bulletins and to follow us on Twitter at at PharmaForum. Thanks for listening.